Julia Hampton and Julia E. Hampton CPAPC have been your trusted sources for local tax preparation, payroll, and business services for more than 20 years. Do you have a tax strategy heading into 2019? You should. Well, unless you like being in trouble. Do you like being in trouble, Jason? Uh, no, but I'm remarkably good at it, regardless of whether I have a tax strategy or not. Well, look, if you have a bad tax strategy or no tax strategy at all, there's one person in town that can help you, and that's Julia Hampton. Call her today. She's right in the heart of downtown. Call her at 816-554-0394. I, I've always called this what I call a Santa Claus project. You know, I get, I get, made, get to make a lot of money <laughs> making people really happy. So... You get that kind of positive feedback coming in. It just makes you want to go to work every day earlier and stay later, and um, it feeds on itself, and you want to solve the problem. So, you know, you get to be an entrepreneur, but you get to be an entrepreneur on, on this really, really good project. And so, yeah, you're going to attack the problems not from a, an, an abstract way, but more from a... Um, from a personal way. You know, you could say, this is something that I'm really doing and it's doing a lot of good. This is Craig and Scott Belzer. Craig and Scott Belzer, welcome to the Summit Town Hall. I appreciate you guys sitting down with me to tell me your story. This month, we are talking all about entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurial community here in Lee Summit. You guys, like I do, work out of Bridge Space in downtown Lee Summit. And I first heard about your company. I thought it was new. I didn't realize it had been around for a long time. But Bard's Beer Company, a gluten-free beer company, which you've been around for 14 years, but I think to a lot of us, that's a whole new thing. So let's start at the beginning. Why? Well, I actually have a thing called celiac disease. Um, about 16 years ago, I went to the doctor, and he goes, uh, Craig, you can't have anything with wheat, barley, rye, or oats in it. It's effectively causes um, digestive issues, hurts your health and everything. Um, it's fairly common. About 1% of the people in the country have it. But if you go in, at the time, the doctor, you're talking about bread, all bread, beer, pizza, pretty much 80% of the grocery store products are gluten-containing. All the things I love. Yeah. Except for cheese, man. Yeah. Well, you go into the bakery. Well, I mean, it, literally, there's, it's hidden in, in a lot of things, too. You know, we used to buy packets of gravy, and no, it's got flour in it. I mean, it's just it's, it's in, in everything. So all of a sudden, you know, a person like me, <laughs> I, I love my Twinkies, I love my hamburgers, I love everything else, and it was all pulled back. Um, 14 years ago, or at the time, we were able to get um, really bad bread. If you've, people have tried gluten-free products before, um, 14, 15 years ago, rice cakes was your bread, and people looked at you and said, there, go make a sandwich out of that, and you were left to yourself. A styrofoam sandwich. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, well, how much did that? Did, I'm curious how much did that changed your life. I have a, I have some friends who their son was born with celiac, but 20 years ago. But they, his diet was created as he grew up, so he never knew anything different. You you're a grown adult when you find out all this stuff. I love, I can't do anymore. Um, I found out after coming back 
from working overseas for a year and a half in England, um, which is, you know, you get to go to the tavern or the pub every night, and you get the English beers, and you get lots and lots of really good beer over there. And you come back, and, and I, it, the trip over there renewed how much I liked beer. Um, so coming back here, while I was over there, I would go to the French bakery um, on the way to work. And on the way back, there was a pastry shop and fish and chips everywhere. So well, I'm hungry now. I, sorry about that, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, <coughs> pardon me. But what effectively happened mm-hmm. is all these things that I found and rediscovered and, and became in, in, enchanted with, I came back over here and they started making me sick. And, you know, you will eventually find... Um, gluten-free replacements to the regular products but most of those products are very pale imitations and you get the added benefit of getting to pay about three times as much my food bill tripled um, because I was diagnosed we found out my daughter was celiac my son also went on a gluten-free diet Um, my wife who had eczema um, all her life went on a gluten-free diet because everybody in the family does because it, it does it doesn't it just affect one person it gets the entire family and long and short of it is 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 you, it completely disrupts your 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 uh, your diet and how you do things but you will recover but you find out that uh, you kind of get obsessive on some of the things you can't have uh, and and the top two were uh, I wanted to have my my Twinkie and I wanted to have a glass of beer. Not at the same time, mind you, but but you know that's kind of how it goes. Those are the two you missed the most. Those are the two that I missed the most. Well, you have and and, and your brother told me that right. you have a kind of a science background, a science head. So so tell me a little bit about how you decided. Well, I miss beer, but instead of maybe being obsessively searching on the internet, you decided I'm going to go make my own. Well, uh, first thing to clarify the the science side of the world, um, I went through the entire Lee Summit uh, high school experience, avoiding every major science class I could find. Um, whereas I could take biology or chemistry, I opted for earth science and I studied rocks. <laughs> so we're we're not well prepared for the for the beer adventure at the beginning at all, um, but. You know, I decided that I could, you know, we'd homebrewed with my, my father before once, and it didn't seem like it was rocket science. So I started going out there, and I started looking for gluten-free malt. You, um, malt is what all beer is made from. It's a sprouted, the sprouted grain um, that's then dried like a green coffee bean and then roasted to different flavors. And that's what really makes a beer, not corn or rice or anything else. It's... It's the ability to sprout and develop these flavors. I went out looking for a gluten-free malt. It didn't exist. So my first homebrew experience wasn't one of those nice little kits. It was building a malting apparatus that nobody had built before to malt all the different grains to find out which one tasted like beer. And, yeah, if you said that I was obsessive for a good two years, my wife would agree with you, and so would Scott. (laughs) Um, uh, I utilized Scott a lot in the early part to try some really bad beer. So, Scott, is is, is your role in this mainly as chief tester? Absolutely. So, uh, and I, I volunteer very quickly. Um, 
He uh, that was he, not a hard sell. No, no, it no, it was easy. He uh, it was learning to make beer, and so since I'm not a celiac, I could drink anything except for the bad beer. And so he he would call me up and come over and try this. And so as he progressed, some of it was good, some of it was bad. He gradually got the process down, and he started making some really good beer. So yeah, that was that was a rough job. Well, one of one of the things he 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 talks about a lot is is the gluten free community. We talked about rice cakes it has a lot of what they call good enough products. Um, and, and that's probably the central theme behind this is I spent a lot of time making beer that was almost good enough, but it doesn't really taste like beer. And my bar was if it didn't taste exactly like beer, if you as a normal beer drinker would not be able to tell it was made gluten-free, that's what it had to be. Um, and the entire company kind of happened by accident um, well, how because do you, of that. How do you go through that? That process because obviously you're going to use different grains, mm-hmm. oh. which which grains are everything in beer. So so how how are you how are you mixing it and 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 here's 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 the dumb question: How do you find a grain that doesn't have gluten? Well, uh, very simple because the grains that do have gluten it's wheat, barley, rye, and oats. So you know the four that they are. Lee Summit had the old mill at the time. You know, and which had, you could go down and you could get your horse corn, you could get milo, sorghum, you could get a lot of different grains out of those guys or they would order it for you. So it starts out with, you know, the old mill. Um, Getting those grains, we're in the Midwest. I mean, you know, how many people do you know, farmers, we drive by, you go down 50 highway and there's, you know, sorghum and milo are exactly the same thing. so, you know, one of the first beers that we tried, we went and got a bag of feed corn. Uh, we malted it. Um, it smelled absolutely wonderful. Um, I have, uh, I, I was looking forward to this beer, was fermenting, because I thought, wow, I finally got something. It's going to be a corn beer, a malted corn beer. Um, pulled it out of the fermenter, nice and bubbly. I poured it um, in a glass looked beautiful drank it i've never tasted anything more horrid in my <laughs> life um Scott, I, you concur <laughs> yes yes it was bad it was it was a little bit fun because they didn't realize that the oil in corn will coat your teeth so you can brush your teeth and not get that taste out for for a while so so there was a, there was a lot of fails um but we ran across a a, a sorghum and found out that there was a lot of people in the a lot of government agencies will help you so once i started doing this there was people out at the usda in manhattan kansas who were will help you with the chemistry now how do you find all that is that is that internet research is that you're making phone calls i mean how do you stumble onto hey there's 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 some local i'm thinking you know university extensions and other government things how do you find that well going back to what i said my science wasn't that good so i started looking looking up yeah basically do your google search okay so um we were looking for people that would help and we went to the there's a national grain sorghum council i talked to those guys and they had a lot of resources they put me in touch and it was just really a Kind of like what Ben does around here. It was it was networking all of a sudden. One guy pushed me into another guy who pushed me into another guy, um, and we found a gentleman out there that was with the USDA that helped run a lot of uh, testing. And that testing was allowing me to uh, really quickly refine the beer and make it taste really really good. Um, we 
just basically made a lot of beer for a long time and Scott drank a lot and eventually we 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 had one day where the beer was just as good as anything else and it it just was uh, okay well what are we going to do with it now because it was my intention to just make it and drink it for a while now this is 12 14 years ago yes right so as you're as you're doing that research and as you're you're stumbling your way through to find that 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 perfect beer are you finding other people that are trying this oh yeah 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 i've my my wife didn't like me for a while <laughs> um yeah my wife uh, i've We've got a friend Tim, and and he tried it. I mean, there was a lot of volunteers when you talk well, about giving well, free beer. Well, no, and I, and I wonder. Well, yeah, I think if you say free beer, the yeah. line's going to be around the block. <laughs> um, we could fill bridge space, I think, if we just put that sign out there. What I'm wondering is, are you finding other people that are trying to make this? No, at the time, the the, the beautiful thing was, is there was me and another gentleman that was on the internet doing any kind of research with it whatsoever. We actually went to distributors and we went to people and talked about gluten free beer, and now. Nobody can make it, and there's no market for it. But when you look at 1% of the population, I told you earlier on, 1% of the population has this, and they are the market leader for the house. If you go gluten-free, your family's going to go gluten-free. Um, but you can take that 1%, and you can say, the well, the average consumption of beer is 12.8 cases a year per person of drinking age. You do the math on that, you had about a $450 million market that nobody was serving. So this is a pretty compelling, um, you know, if we can capture 1% of, an un, un, uh, of a market that had zero um, other people in it, then we could, you know, that was a pretty good business case. Well, let's jump into that then because... You know, you, you you've been working on the recipe. You've been trying to figure out. You you make right. it, and I think well, we're we're going to get back to talking about tasting good beer because okay. well, that's what we all love. <laughs> but okay, so now you're gonna now you see the market. You've made you're making the beer. You've seen the market. Tell me about how that how then you launch into let's do a business plan. Let's let's make this a thing. So it's not just your garage. It's not just your your buddies testing for you and you know plying your brother for with free drinks. How did you guys? How did you guys then sit down and say, "Okay, let's make this a business"? Well, honestly, what ended up happening is I was putting a lot of research up on the internet, um, not really eyeing a business to begin with. Um, and what ended up happening is I was approached by a gentleman out of uh, uh, Connecticut, who was my original business partner, um, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Seplowitz. Kevin came up to me, and he was going to be the business side of this. He said, send me the beer. Let me see what it tastes like. Maybe we can make a business out of this. Um, so I sent him some of the samples. He says, well, we can definitely make a business out of this. He came from an entrepreneurial background, um, and he kind of got us up and running and started. He and I basically got together, um, started the company. Um, you know, from there... Um, he was in it for a couple of years, but then he ended up having some health issues and whatnot, and I ended up being a businessman when I hadn't intended on being one. Like Scott said earlier on, I'm, I'm more uh, into the technical side of the world and having having good, solid fun that direction. Has it been a goal of yours to, to, to have your own business? Was this, was this something you've kind of always wanted to do a little bit? Maybe not with the beer, but... Well, mad science. I just like, I, I really get focused on these kind of things, and, and uh, that's really what I have. And the business side of it originally was, um, 
more of a uh, an accident, so to speak. You know, you get a business partner that, that gets ill, you step in, you start finding out that you actually do like the business side of the world. The independence is absolutely fantastic, you know, when you don't have to go in and have somebody else be your boss and you can be the boss it's stressful but at the same time exceedingly liberating and so, the best accidents include beer right well the whole time i'm doing that scott's running a business of his and he's talking about this entrepreneurial mindset um you know this uh don't pass the problems up the food chain solve them yourself um figure out ways to solve them practically so i'm actually for once in my life listening to my brother <laughs> Um, I'm going to assume that Scott's the older brother. Yeah. Yes. I that, that just that sounds like natural younger brother, older oh. brother. I'm the younger brother, too. So, Well, that's the best way to be anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so effectively, you know, we went into this business. Um, we started finding that we had to develop this technology of malting, um, the sorghum that we used, we didn't know this at the time, but we had a malt quality lab in Madison, Wisconsin, which is a massive government company. Um, part of the reasons we got a lot of our research, this is interesting, is we went to the malt quality lab in Madison, Wisconsin. These guys are responsible for evaluating all of the barley malt cultivars. You know what a cultivar is? No, no. Uh, apples. Pink Ladies, Brayburn, uh, Fuji's, those, okay. are, those, are, okay. those are all apples, but they're different types and different characteristics. That's a cultivar. Believe it or not, grain has, cultivar, has cultivars all over the place, and they're vastly different. There's a lot of grain sorghum that will not make good beer. We ended up stumbling across one of them. Um, we ended up getting a hold of the seed company because that was that good. Um, but this malt quality lab in Madison, Wisconsin, had a bunch of PhDs at a university up in Wisconsin who had looked for the last 25 years at, at barley malting. And, you know, it's kind of like eating hamburgers for 25 years. I came along and said, okay, um, look at sorghum. Boy, they, <laughs> you're offering, that's, that's like offering steak to a shark. I don't know how to, how to say it all of a sudden. He's got, you want us to look at something brand new and we can publish papers on it and we can have exciting, fun stuff instead of looking at barley yet again. I was giving pizza to people that are eating hamburgers all over the place. And it went. It, you just made a lot of nerds really happy. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. Um, and they ended up coming back with a lot of information and, and, just the technical knowledge of this whole, this, this uh, running across a malter who could make it, doing a lot of investment in the, in the science behind this, and really the art as well. Um, we ended up having a foundation technology that we can make any beer. You, you name a beer and I can make a clone of it and it'll taste like a beer it won't taste like a pale imitation it'll taste like that beer you well know, is that is that then where where the where and you just said this mm -hmm. is that where the art comes in absolutely you got the science now and so now the art comes in you're going to craft the recipe to make i mean look the, the beer world is huge now in that there is a flavor for everything yes so is is, is that the art part it is and and what ends up happening here is it's kind of a different art um 
there's a lot of beers like you talk about now where people are diverging from the flavor of beer. It's uh, a ghost pepper beer or raspberry beer or, you know, grapefruit beer. You know, there's a lot of things that are added to beer that make it diverge from tasting like beer. You know, when I go and drink in when I was drinking a Budweiser or I go and drank a Sam Adams or one of these beers, you can taste the grain, you can taste the malt, you can taste it. It doesn't taste like grapefruit, apple, strawberry, or fig, or anything to that effect, um, or any of these alternatives. So we have, at the time, we came out with what this our first beer, which was Bard's Gold, which was an Oktoberfest lager. If anybody at this time of the year, you can go out and get Oktoberfest. That seems Absolutely. to me like that's a, a gutsy first beer. Well, you, what you want here is the very first beer you're going to go in a beer company is, believe it or not, going to be a light American lager because we're not really looking at it from a – because people have celiac disease, it's not necessarily a um, – it's not a just craft brewers because if you look at everybody across the entire population, the most popular beer style is a light beer. You know, Bud Light's – Bud Light and Bud. So do you consider yourself craft beer makers? Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, we have to address the general beer population. So our first beer that came out was um, really needed to be a lawnmower beer, a beer that you can sit there and drink uh, on a hot summer day. That was absolutely the market demanded that. Um, I not yeah, When you own the company, you get to pull a little... Uh, uh, special favors for yourself. About as close as I wanted to get to a um, lawnmower beer was an Oktoberfest lager. Um, there's a there's a company out there right now called Left Hand. Um, they make one of the best Oktoberfest lagers, and it tastes exactly like our beer. And so what ends up happening is is when you get this kind of beer and it tastes that good, um, we got very popular off of just that. Um, at the time, because we were growing so fast, we ended up turning. I ended up hiring a CEO to come in and help me run the company. It was uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Brian Kolchuk, who was the ex CEO of Pabst. He had retired and he came in and he ran it for us for a couple of years. So he helped with the scalability and getting it from the 18 states that we were in to all the states and up into Canada and down into some places in South America and whatnot. Well, let's let, let's pause there a little bit and okay. let's let's talk about that that growth and how you do that because I think we just skipped from I'm making it in my garage. I've oh. done a few testers, and now all of a sudden you're saying we're in 18 states, we're in 50 states, we're in Canada. So how does that how does that growth happen? And beer's not an easy market to break into. That well, it's a very controlled, and we've seen a lot of consolidation happening there. So how do you how do you all of a sudden get from from my garage my local area to i'm now i'm now pushing out to, to 1850 states well i'll tell you what it's a case study that should be done someday in what they call guerrilla marketing <laughs> hands down i'm going to tell you this we went in we brewed our first batch up in new york at a uh, we contracted into a small 20 barrel brewery up there um, we produced the beer we went to a distributor in new york and they did what everybody else did. Gluten-free beer? Yeah, right. I've never heard of it. Don't want it. Don't even want to think about it. For two years, we'd had a website up, and we had tell, told everybody, we have your beer. It's ready to go. And so every celiac person that ever wanted a beer was signed up. Our massive database of email addresses and people 
was was great. So what we did is we turned around and said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take this from the other other side. We emailed everybody in New York. And we said, guys, you wanted gluten-free beer. If you want gluten-free beer, here's a sheet of paper. Take it to every retailer. Print out 50 copies. Give your families. Take it to the retailers that you want and have them ask for Bard's beer. Um, two weeks later, we had our pick of any distributor in the country because, or any of the distributor in that state. And it took us about three to six months and we were out in nine states okay again i go back to the original we had no competition nobody had had it and using that technology having people come in and just ask for the beer and you literally had families that were okay we're going to print out 20 of them and take it to our grocery store and we're going to take it here and we had our buddies do it and the distributors never seen anything like that before people actually asking for the beer like that um, and it sold very, very well. And we quickly outgrew that particular brewery and had to switch to a much larger brewery on the West Coast. And then we ended up outgrowing those guys and had to move to a really big one on the East Coast, and we stayed there for, for quite some time. And so it was just a matter of uh, high growth. At the time, you know, from a business person's perspective, I never realized how big of a money crunch you could get into when you grow really, really fast. You know, and, and yeah. Tell me a little bit, a little bit about that. And I think you know, as 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 we're in Entrepreneurship Month, and next week is Entrepreneur, Global Entrepreneurship Week, and and we're gonna have seminars here in town talking about scaling and talking about. So tell me a little bit about about that crunch and how you how you deal with that. And, and Scott, I, I feel bad that I'm just. That's <laughs> I'm all right. That's all right. Go. Yeah. So, so feel free to jump in. But, but how do you how do you deal with that need to grow and obviously grow grow quickly? Man, that's a that's a lot of money to need all of a sudden. It's it is, and and so what ends up happening is when you make twenty barrels of beer, and all of a sudden somebody comes back and they need sixty barrels of beer. Hey, you've got to go, and and for us, we had to go buy the grain make sure it had been grown um so i mean it's it's we we one of the foundation pieces was us controlling it from the time that it's grown to the time that it hits grocery store shelves so that means that we got to pay the growers to grow we got to buy it from them Uh, there's a lot of lead time but you know again starting this thing out and, and taking it over from kevin and and realizing that 20 barrels is great but when they want 60 barrels yes i can produce it but now i gotta go find the money to buy the ingredients for the next 40 barrels um and then when that took off and it tripled again um you know the the growth rate on this was just exciting and fun but again um how i handled that we had to do a lot of fundraising there was a lot of people around in lee summit that helped us there was a lot of people across the board that helped us we found uh, fundraising, we found lines of credit. It was creative financing all over the place because, again, uh, you're selling everything you can and and promising the next set of products. Uh, handling that was probably one of the more difficult things that I've done. Um, and what I did was realize early on that cash flow and accounting was not my forte. <laughs> and so if anything else you ever do in a small business is admit to yourself early on what you're good at and not, and so I brought in an accountant and I brought in a person to act as a CFO and we actually just, it, it was a fairly easy equity rye. You know, when you're going to saying I need money because it's selling out, 
um, you have a lot of, of people that are willing to um, help you. Well, and I'm curious because you said you kind of learned the the business side on the fly and because because it was necessary, but that wasn't that wasn't your background. You didn't train for it, and it wasn't the part you looked forward to the most. So I'm curious a little bit about your kind of your attitude too, because you're taking these leaps, you're growing mm-hmm. by these leaps and bounds. And then you're asking for money, so there's a lot of risk in there too. And God, I'm, I'm curious about how you you dealt with that internally because that wasn't your that doesn't seem like that was your natural instinct. I, I actually have two degrees, one in marketing, one in computer information systems. So the computer information systems taught me to be an analyst. The marketing was how to sell, um, and they're both BSBA degrees, business business administration degrees. So I've set through the management classes and everything else. But the mindset is to go into an office, into a cubicle, and be a manager of a business or a mid manager. It wasn't be the top dog or be an entrepreneur. I don't think anybody's prepared for that from any college, really. Um, so coming into it, it was just, it was reactionary, uh, totally, um, so going into, um, where my mindset was, um, I was just really, really busy. I used the analyst part of it to solve the problems. A lot of it's luck. I'm, I hate to say that. I mean, you can plan <clears throat> a lot, but being in the right place at the right time, um, and having the right people help, and that really is it. Is that luck, or is that you doing the things you need to do to be in the right place at the right time? Because I sometimes you look you look at the stories of the of the businesses that make it, the businesses that really grow, and I have trouble believing luck. I have trouble. I really think that's a lot of that's a lot of I've done the things to be in the right place. I think luck. When I think of luck, I think of somebody getting a you know drawn a lotto ticket or something like that, just completely random. In this case, there was a definite market as he's building this. There was nothing. I mean, this was scratch built. There was no infrastructure. There was no, I mean, he had to go get the grains. He had to get it to, you know, nobody, gluten-free 15 years ago, 14 years ago, no, nobody even knew what that meant. And so as he's building this, he's building everything along the way and learning and making mistakes. And, and so I think what he recognized and what I recognized was a need. There's a need. You know, you've got those at $480 million market. And you've got, what, $11 million? I don't remember what the last figure is on gluten-free. Uh, now you've got a trend of people that are choosing it for lifestyle, not because they're celiac. So there's, there, there's, there's more. But he, he, he saw a need. I saw a need. And you're, then I think the entrepreneur and you just says, all right, these people want it and I got it. How do I get them together? Right? So, well, and I don't think, I don't think luck played in as much as, you know, it might've been lucky that you just said, you know, Hey, this looks good. Let's do it. But beyond that, I think there was a need. Well, let me rephrase that then. Um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Google was this thing you may have kind of heard about, but you didn't really think that you, there was not that much thought about, okay, it's a place I can go to search stuff. You didn't know you needed it back then. Now you couldn't live without it, okay? Everybody searches for everything all the time. That's what this entire project was. This is us coming in. We perceived a need, and we were right, absolutely. Um, and so the, there's a lot of positive energy around this thing. You know, I sound like my wife. <laughs> she, she, um, I always find that when I say things my wife would say, it makes for a better world. Well, yes. <laughs> and I'm going on the record as saying, yeah, my wife's right. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, here's the thing. Uh, me as a person, I'm positive and optimistic, okay? Um, 
I'm looking for ways to do things, and I'm looking for reasons to believe. And that positive, optimistic, um, you know, entrepreneurial mindset is how can I do things? What can I do? There, there's there, here's an opportunity. Let's see if we can explore it. So, yeah, it may not have been so much luck, but it's just here's an attitude. It was, it was. You're getting a lot of feedback from people. Um, you know, early on, the first first case of beer that we ever had that Kevin and I produced, it was getting ready to go to a store. Um, we got an email from a, a lady whose father was dying of cancer. Uh, he was a veteran, um, and he had days to live, and we were basically going, okay, let's take that case of beer and let's ship some out to him, okay? And so he got to have a beer before he died. Um that's the one thing that he wanted. So you, you get this kind of reaction, or you come up with a lady that uh, that uh, hadn't had a beer in 75 years. I, I, I've always called this what I call a Santa Claus project. You know, I get I get may, get to make a lot of money <laughs> making people really happy. So you get that kind of positive feedback coming in. It just makes you want to go to work every day earlier and stay later, and um, it feeds on itself, and you want to solve the problem. So, you know, you get to be an entrepreneur, but you get to be an entrepreneur on, on this really, really good project. And so, yeah, you're going to attack the problems not from a, an, an abstract way, but more from a um, from a personal way. You know, you could say, this is something that I'm really doing, and, and it's doing a lot of good. I don't know if that answered the question, but... No, but I think that sums up a lot of what, what, we, what we all hope when we, start, when we start our business. We find our, our passion, and we, we, we hope that it has that effect on somebody else. I want to go back a little bit and key on something you both, you both kind of mentioned. As in the last 15 years or so, gluten-free has become a huge market. It wasn't when you started. It is now. You go to the grocery store, there's entire sections that are gluten-free. Tell me how that has correlated with you as you grow and you expand and, and where those play together. Well, okay. So when we started coming out as gluten-free, we were out for a while, and then we had a couple of other beer companies that, that looked at it and said, okay, maybe there's a market for it. Um, and they came out with corn syrup beers. Literally, Anheuser-Busch came in with a beer that was... A combination of raw grains. They didn't use any malt, but it was good enough for the people with celiac disease. And I'm not sure I should have called out Anheuser Bush, but <laughs> <laughs> but what what I'm saying is they came out with one that that was rice cakes. Doesn't taste like beer. Um, so so I, I'm not celiac, and so I, my only qualification was it was really good beer and tasted good. So 14 years ago, there was nothing. And so now there's a lot. Everybody knows what gluten-free is and organic and all that. And so what, what's happened now is they're very aware of that gluten-free tag. One thing, the Bards has never had a contamination issue. There's a lot of confidence when they buy a bottle of this beer that it's safe to drink, right? So in saying that, uh, you know, he and I never had the opportunity to drink a beer together. He'd go, we'd go to the bar, and I'd have a beer, and he'd have a glass of wine or a cider. Well, now we can go pour beer we have a beer um, that was a big thing uh, the social issue because people they, they drink sometimes you want to be around your friends and he was always the outsider he was the, always the guy you know that couldn't have this or couldn't have this so part of the fun is, is to include it all there's way more awareness in gluten-free now and so 
I, I believe that's going to drive a lot more volume for us uh, coming back into the market. So, and one of the things that he said was was absolutely. Um, you know, we're coming back into the market. We're, we're coming back into the market. We're, we, we've made a switch. So, real quick, we're, we're back. Uh, it was originally brewed in bottles in New York. We chose another brewery. Uh, that was a solid choice. It's left hand out of Longmont, Colorado, and those guys are super duper when it comes to making beer. They make some awesome beer. So, they were really stoked about getting with us because they'd never tried any gluten free. So, now you've got some first rate brewers making some first rate beer in cans. And so part of our shift is get it back, get it uh, as a lifestyle choice. You've got a can of beer. You can go on a float trip. You can go to a ball game. You can do things that with a bottle you you can't do anymore. I think it's important to note it's still Bard's beer. It's still oh, yeah. Bard's beer. It's still it's still great tasting. It's still 100% gluten free. Uh, it's just we, we you're had partnering to, with them to brew it. Yeah, there are there are we're contracting them to break make our beer. So, so. and what we ended up doing here, and and Scott will get into this, is we had a technology to make any kind of beer we have. We've only ever made one beer, and that's because it sold, it sold, it sold, it sold, it sold. We never had time to uh, move on to make other beers. So when Scott and I bought the, the bought it back from, um, the, the we, we bought the controlling interest back, what we ended up finding was we tooled the entire thing up. We have our roasters. We, have the, we moved the malt house from Canada down to Kansas. We have everything set up so we can start producing all ranges of beer, seasonals, the whole nine yards. So that was the dream that I originally had was is not only to have an Oktoberfest lager, we're going to have a light beer. We had a beer that I got. I When I was first producing this beer, I sat in my garage brewing three days a week um, to try and get the original recipe down. Um, and I got so sick of never having any of my own beer. I'd brew this recipe. I'd send it up to New York to get some financing. I'd brew and I'd send it up to New York. And I sat down one day and I made a beer for me. I threw my I threw my regular grains in. I had some roasted buckwheat, tasted like kind of grape nuts. I brought in some honey. I just made a recipe up on the spot because it was going to be for me and I was going to drink it and it was going to be nobody else gets to have it. And we called it the Tavern Ale. And I tasted that beer and it was the best beer that I've ever had. Now, I've been over in England and this is the best beer that I've ever had. And I got to take that beer and of course what happens when it's that good and you're trying to open a business? Yeah, I sent it all up to New York and we got a really big check. We had one of our big investors up there says, if you can make a beer like this then here you go. And he wrote a very large check and we were up and running. So you end up having um back to your original question you're talking about how does gluten-free affect us there wasn't a market um, at all we were the first ones we actually kind of created the market we had a lot of people come on and start imitating um, and then probably about five six years ago gluten-free really started to take off um, people started doing it for lifestyle reasons people started realizing that celiac disease um, the avoiding gluten is one one of the things you do is celiac disease but my wife i said had uh, she had eczema and found out that um sorry celiac is an immune system response so there are people out there that are like me that are diagnosed celiacs that have a specific response when they um, eat something with gluten but there are people that 
aren't as sensitive, that don't have that same response so they don't know that they're damaging themselves. And my wife would have been one of them. There are people that are on the autism spectrum. They go on a, what they call a gluten casein soy-free diet. They can't eat gluten, soy, or dairy products. Um, and those people end up having remission in a lot of their symptoms. Um, personal experience on that one. I, uh, I have a son that is uh, was on the autistic spectrum, and we put him on a gluten casein soy-free diet and pulled away. So what we're finding is that um, six, eight years ago, we had um, a lot of the conventional wisdom started coming across. They're tying gluten consumption into problems with lupus, with Alzheimer, with with there's about 240 different things that was uh, cause, uh, causation. So these are the people that are having problems, and a contributing factor is gluten, and they, they're a lot better. We had major sports stars that we've dealt with for years and shipped beer with. I don't think I can identify them, but a uh, major league baseball uh, player that uh, drank ours, and it wasn't that he was celiac, it's just that he performed better when he was on a gluten-free diet. And so, you know, you can see pictures of him drinking beer, our beer, all over the internet. Um, these kind of things happen, and then, you, you know, you have major Hollywood stars that have started to come out as gluten. You can tell that gluten is mainstream because now the comedians on Saturday Night Live are mocking it. <laughs> so, so so, really the goal is to get your beer on Saturday Night Live. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so it just occurred to me, too, I think part of the thing, too, is that this whole craft beer movement, uh, you know, it, that started in the last 15, we'll call it 15 years. It's been longer than that. But... So a lot of young people, there's this whole craft beer movement, and their expectation of beer is not Bud Light or Coors Light, what we grew up with. And so having a gluten-free beer, that some of the other ones that were out there that were just good enough, oh, well, that wasn't good enough for them. And so there's a big market here for very good-tasting beer. There's tons of craft beer out there, but there's not tons of really good craft gluten-free beer. And so, so as these millennials or whomever... You start looking for really good beer, and since a lot of them are going gluten-free or choosing to or whatever, I've never looked at this as, uh, he's the celiac, I'm not. I, I just wanted good beer. So my overall goal is to produce a range of beers that are really good, and by the way, they just happen to be gluten-free. We can all drink them. And so I, I think there's a, there's a need, there's certainly a, a market for that moving forward. Well, before we talk about the future and, 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 and mm-hmm. those things that are next, I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Let's talk about the moment, Scott, when you kind of graduated from official taste tester and, and you came and joined the little brother right. and you guys teamed up. Let's, let, how, did that, how did that happen? So he, he had hit me up, you know, obviously for the taste testing. And, you know, I've been dealing with it on and off. I was never really formally in his business, first, the, the first model, the first go-around. Uh, I'd owned several businesses. I'd worked for some companies, so I was doing my own thing. Uh, all was probably about three years ago. The original CEO was putting out words, I want to retire, I want to retire. So Craig's like, well, I want to get this back. He's always kind of wanted to do it his way, and he's got some ideas. And, and he said, hey, you, you want to do this with me? And I thought about it for a while. And my only qualification was, other than it's needs to make money, is, is it going to be fun? Because I, you know, I didn't want to have a headache. I'd, I'd left another business that was a headache, and I wasn't getting back into that again. So, all right, we're, we'll, we'll go do this. So. I stepped in about three years ago, uh, and really my 
claim to fame, if you will. He brought me on because I had some background in business. But mainly it's the networking. My wife and I were just out talking to people. We just She'd had a successful business. We knew people. And so we just started talking this thing up locally and then you know, going out and kind of drumming up interest, and it came. And so they brought me on board. You know, then we got into a, a fundraising, you know, driving an equity drive. And so I got involved in that. And then, then it became, all right, well, now that we got the money, you, you know, now I need help, you know, calling distributors and selling beer. So it, it, it was, again, semi-accidental, semi-planned, and it just kind of we just kind of went with it. So now I'm on board, and he and I are doing this. And 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 I got to tell you, when you're running a beer company, the networking side of this is it, that was always been the black black arts to me. I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> it, it, it no, I mean. I can have relationships with uh, you know half dozen people and, and deal with that um, in a business, but when you're in more than 50 states and the provinces, and you're having to have relationships with distributors and retailers, and and that's just beyond me because you know I forget names. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> so, As a business owner, you're always selling. You're always you know you're always selling your your business in some form or another. Well, and those are different halves of marketing. You talked about your marketing mm-hmm. background earlier. The networking is a to to me it's it's a left brain right brain thing, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah to have to be able to kind of split those duties can can be a huge help. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree, I agree, and and that was that was very much a planned event because that was again going back to identifying your weaknesses and what you can do and what you should do better and what you should outsource. And uh, Scott's one of the best networkers I've ever seen. He's been doing it for years and years and years, and he kept telling me that I was doing it bad and <laughs> so okay buddy well, step uh, up and do it yourself so I think <laughs> you're well, hired <laughs> it's, a, it's a great story I mean you know beer to the beerless he didn't have a couldn't have a beer and he said you know what I'm gonna have one now you've got this product so what do you do you sit at home no you go out and tell everybody and so that's kind of where it went we we've got a great beer we've got this great product let's go tell let's go tell everybody <laughs> No, no, it was just one of the things Scott said earlier on, and, you know, you talk about beer for the beerless is one of the things that he said. Um, There is one of the things that people don't realize about being a gluten-free person with celiac disease is there is a certain element of social isolation. And I say that because when I go to the restaurant, um, I want to be the guy that just says, yeah, give me the hamburger and the french fries and we're good. But I do the interview every single time. Sorry. I do the interview every single time, and the interview is basically, um, okay, what kind of dressing do you have? Is there any wheat in it? Do you Can you not put the croutons on? Can you not only not put the croutons on, but if you put them on, don't pick them off. Um, get me a new salad. Um, is there anything in the gravy? Do you put anything there? And you have to make a spectacle out of yourself. Or, again, going to a bar. I can go watch a football game in the bar. That's great. And Scott's drinking a beer, and my friend Tim's drinking a beer, and Rhett and Kent, the two cousins we have, are drinking a beer, and I'm over there going, "Can I have a rum fizzy?" You know, and it just it just isn't there because you can't even have any of the Mike's hard lemonades or any of those because they're malt based barley malt. And so the social isolation, us bringing this thing in, that social isolation was a big. Um, That's a, an important a part factor. of the story. Oh, it it it, it is, and. Further to that, what ended up happening is going again back to your question about the the uh, gluten free movement. Uh, because I wanted to step out, we started producing beers 
we had some imitators that were making out of corn syrup, but about six, seven years ago, all of a sudden, there was a group of people that decided that they could uh, make a thing called a gluten-reduced beer. Okay? Now, gluten-reduced beer is a beer where they take barley, and at the end of the process, they put a enzyme in so that the fermented product at the end will not test positive on a gluten test. Um, this is effectively uh, gaming the system, so to speak. <laughs> um, I ended up being, I identified that. It was one of the first things I identified and tried before going into the gluten-free grains. It was something that maybe I personally can drink a half a beer without a reaction. Um, I could probably drink a full beer that was gluten-reduced without a reaction, but I'm still going to be damaging myself. So you have a lot of companies that came in and they swooped in and said, oh, we can take this 500 years of research with barley and we can make something that tastes really good and then we can call it gluten-free. One of the, we, we did a survey with one of the big uh, gluten um, support organizations. 50% of the uh, 50 of the people that were drinking it were getting sick. So it didn't really do. It didn't really do what it was supposed to do. No, but the thing here is, is they were p taking advantage of the market, and by taking advantage of the market, um, they basically kind of dispossessed some of the people that were truly gluten free um, early on. And so there's this predatory market out there. There's this predatory um, toward gluten free, and being able to go uh, and produce beer not have to worry about it, never have contamination, and you know, setting those kind of standards early on and not taking the easy road uh, was one of the things that we ended up talking about. So, so that whole gluten-free movement, um, start, people started, well, it was a $23 billion business this year. Okay, people are, it's the number one food trend in the United States. You're gonna get people that are coming in and doing all kinds of things. You've got major cereal manufacturers um, that are not able to be gluten-free uh, because they spray malt syrup on their cereal and everything with the word malt in it except us is not gluten-free. Well, you talked about you, you've mentioned contamination a few times here. Right. So you are you are contracting with Left Hand Brewery to brew your beer. Right. They make gluten beers. Yep. So how do you how do you do they have to set up a whole new system then to do uh, yours? How does that how do you make sure there's not a contamination? Because I know, I know, Scott. Before we got on air, when I first met you, you told me you know you don't keg the beer simply because there could be cross contamination with taps. Yes, the the, the keg the kegging process uh, that that that's a problem for later on. It 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 yeah, you can't put if you put bards in a keg, somebody down the line will put uh, a. Coors or Budweiser Sankey, and they'll lock it on that beer, and they'll, you know, that's not good. So, so we control the process by packaged liquor. It's all canned. So, right, so how does the brewing process protect it? Good question. Okay, so starting from the very first, what ends up happening is, is when you have grains, one of the issues that you end up having when you buy grains is the farmer may grow wheat and oats and everything else, and he'll take the sorghum and he'll put that in the same silo. So what you get is sorghum that has wheat and oats in it. So you have to contract farmers and have dedicated silos. That's the first part. Um, then you send it up to a malt house to be produced. That malt house 
always has, they produce barley, malt, they do everything else. So we found a malter and we had a dedicated silo, uh, a dedicated malt house. He did nothing but gluten-free. So, And we had independent testing done everywhere. There's a federal grain inspection service came in and would, for 15 bucks, test your grain. And we got gluten-free certifications all the way through. When the malt was done, we'd ship it to the brewery. Now, a brewery is made with nothing but stainless steel. Um, so as long as you can get the grain into the brewing equipment, um, so we would build our own augers and whatnot and put them in the brewery um, or having put in in independent bags. That was it. The, the stainless steel equipment in a uh, brewery has to be microbiologically safe. So these guys will take this and run a triple acid regiment through this thing. It's down to microbiologically sterile. They even take these little Q-tip instruments and, and make sure that's there. So I think it's the equivalent of if you ate a cheeseburger and I put that plate in the dishwasher 50 times, I'm <laughs> really not going to have problems eating off of it. Um, so, yeah, a brewery, believe it or not, is one of the cleanest places you can get. And as long as they follow certain protocols, there's, there's no danger. And I've never sweated that at all. Well, let's get into then now as we wrap things up, let's, let's get into the, the what's next. You hinted earlier that, that now you're going to start maybe trying some other recipes oh. and other flavors. So, so, so what's next for Bard's Beer? <laughs> the next beer we're going to have, and this goes against what I personally want, is, uh, <laughs> is a light beer. 50% of the beer market is a light beer. There is not a gluten-free light beer on the market right now. Um, and we have a lot of people that are over there going, we want it. We've had the light beer formula for five years um it's absolutely delicious uh, it's kind of like the sam adams light beer you know it's one of those light beers that's going to stand on its own you don't really care that it's a light beer it's just good um it is basically going to be like a pilsner mm -hmm. um so everybody's going to like it it's it's again great uh then the tavern the one that i talked about earlier the one that it was the best beer i've ever had that's coming out um we're gonna then basically start with in the brewery world is, is uh you start doing seasonals. We'll come out with a stout. Okay, I wanted to do a stout forever. Um, Left Hand is known for their stouts. I'm getting very excited about a stout. Oh, I'm, I'm a gluten-free stout. And the fun part is, is I'll produce that stout. Um, we'll run a couple of batches, and if everybody likes it, it's kind of a, a democratic way of doing it. The seasonals are, if people keep buying it, you keep making it. Right. If not, you know, it could become a permanent brand extension. It could maybe not be. But my goal here is to have uh, as many of those as we possibly can. I'd love to have a variety of beer because just like um, just like anybody else, I want to have my options. I don't want to just eat hamburgers every day. So that's that's kind of where we're at. Well, we are a we are a very local podcast. So let me let me ask this question: Where can people hear find Bard's beer? Well, as soon as we get it back in, Hy-Vee, Gomer's, I mean, there's a lot of the places that have carried it before. They're going to carry it again. Um, so we are coming back out December the 15th. And so we should deliver. So January the 1st, we are going to be hitting the local markets. And I'm going to put it in as many grocery stores as you possibly can. Here's the most important question. Yes. Will it be in the fridge at Bridge Space? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. That is what I need to hear. Because <laughs> really, this is always about me. <laughs> Scott, Craig, thank you for sitting down with us, and good luck. Okay, thank you.
people about shopping local. The importance of shopping local. Here's one great reason about shopping local is that you know the people you're doing business with. They're your friends, they're your neighbors, they're people you go to church with, people you hang out with. There's no better example of that than today's sponsor, Bunch of Blinds. This local company is always making themselves available to help the greater community. Hey, not only are they great people in the community, but they also are great at their business. So when you need blinds or shades for your windows, interior decorating, they've got bedding, they've got headboards, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff. And the coolest thing, we always talk about this one, they even have some blinds that you can control with apps on your phone or with your voice to the Alexa or the Google. They are super cool. That is cool. Hey. Check them out right in the heart of our city in downtown Lee Summit. Budget Blinds of Lee Summit. 239 Southeast Main Street.